Uh, I want you to know that I'm really grateful that you're here. If you are a guest of ours, I would love uh, to be able to give you one of our gift bags in the back of the room at the Connect table before you leave today. Uh, If you're someone that calls the Oaks Church home, you know that we are currently going through the book of Mark. And although it is Palm Sunday on our church calendar, it's the beginning of Holy Week, we are actually focusing on the death of Christ today through our study of the book of Mark. And so go ahead and find Mark chapter 15. Meet me there. We are going to be wrapping up the book of Mark next week as we look at the resurrection and get to celebrate Christ's resurrection together. Uh, But for today, we're going to focus on the death of Christ and what he accomplished, both the setting and the significance of what took place on that day. Now, as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with someone several years ago. Uh, They had been coming to the Oaks for a few months, and uh, they invited me out to coffee. And uh, as I was sitting there, we, you know, talked about uh, a couple different things, and then you could kind of tell that the conversation was turning to more serious matters. And it was in that moment uh, that this person said, you know, I've been going to the Oaks for a while, and I like the Oaks, but I just don't think it's going to be uh, my church home. I don't think it's going to be where I, where I put down roots. And obviously as a pastor that, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that hurts. And, and so I said, well, well, what's going on? And this person replied, uh, you know, I like the church. I feel like I'm, I'm learning whenever I attend, but I don't feel like it's a place that I can bring my friends to. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, obviously again, I'm like, oh, ouch. Like, could you word this a little differently? Uh, but then, but then the person's response was, was interesting to me. She said, every single week, you talk about the death of Christ and, and the blood of Christ. And the things that you talk about are just, are just so graphic. It's like always about the crucifixion. No matter what the sermon's about, it always points to the crucifixion. It's just so gory and it's just so in your face. Can we not have a week where maybe we just focus on the miracles of God or just the goodness of God or the mercy of God where, we, where it's, it doesn't have to just be all of that detail? And in response, I was both encouraged and confused. I was encouraged because I was reminded of the words of Christ whenever he says, we preach Christ crucified. It's not because Paul didn't know anything else. It wasn't because the other subjects or, or, or the other attributes of God didn't concern him. No, it's because if we are to know who God is, where else would we look but the crucifixion? You want to, the, you want to know the depth of God's mercy? Look at the cross where the sinless son of God dies for sinners like me. You don't know how good God is? See him take on the bad of the world, hanging above the very world he came to save. Do you want to see the justice of God? Behold the the cross, where we see that God is both just, upholding the penalty against sin, which is death, but that he is also justifier that he completely does away with the power of sin and that the entire penalty of it is absorbed by the son who would rise again. So so what what else do we preach? What else is there to talk about? And as we this week consider that this is the week that we will both celebrate the resurrection of Christ and remember the death of Christ, where else would we look? Augustine once said that the cross was a pulpit in which Christ proclaimed his love for the world. It was John Calvin who said, in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, 
The incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. Christian, where else would you look? Where else would you look not only weekly when we enter this room, but daily, moment by moment, whenever your own sins and failures rear their ugly, again, ugly head again and sanctification feels like such a slow process, to where would we look other than the cross? And yet we behold the cross. Christ, who defangs the dragon of death and completely crucifies the power of sin, not only to take away its penalty, but to gradually take away its presence in our life through our sanctification. Where else would we look but to the death of Christ and to the resurrection of our King? And so guess where we're going to look again this morning? To the death of Christ and the one who is raised. If you could summarize this passage in a word, it would be this, that the death of Christ offers us eternal life. There is no more beautiful contrast, that the death of Christ offers us eternal life. Now, before we read our passage for this morning, I want to set the scene a little bit. Remember, it's Passover week in Jerusalem. So every male above the age of 12 was required to observe the Passover in the city of Jerusalem. The streets are crowded. Uh, There's a lot going on. And at this point, the plots of the Jewish religious leaders to kill Jesus kind of meet the, the opposition of the Roman government toward anyone who would be seen as opposing Caesar. And it crescendos in this moment in which the very Son of God is crucified. And whenever we get to Mark 15, verse 33, we see our Lord hanging above the world that he came to save. Read with me. We're told that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it in this way, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
This morning we're going to look at this passage in two different ways. Uh, First, I want to look at the setting, what took place, the details of the death and burial of Christ. And then I want to look at three accomplishments, the significance of what Christ accomplished. So we'll kind of walk through the entire passage Bible study style, and then I want to pull a couple themes out uh, for the remainder of our time together. Now, we're told at the very beginning of this passage that it was the sixth hour. Now, that does not mean that it was 6 a.m. The Jewish day actually started at 6 a.m. at sunrise. And so whenever we read the sixth hour, that means it's actually noon. Uh, Whenever we read that it's the ninth hour, that means that it is 3 p.m. Now, that's important because this was typically the brightest part of the day. And yet, what do we know? that there was darkness over the land, that darkness covered the land. And this was a supernatural darkness. Uh, Because Passover took place during a full moon, we know that this was not an eclipse that you could just kind of easily explain away. No, this was a darkness that occurred because the Son of God had died, because he was being crucified. It's also significant to know that Uh, Jesus would breathe his last at the ninth hour because Josephus, the church historian, or the Jewish historian rather, says that that was the time in which they sacrificed in the temple, the very time that the once for all sacrifice for all who would believe was to die. Now we hear Jesus cry here, Eloi, Eloi, Lemai, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his cry, the true agony of the cross is exposed. The true agony of the cross was not in the crown upon his head or the nails in his hands. The true agony of the cross was the weight of sin bearing down upon him in the momentary forsakenness from the Father that God in his pure holiness must look away from the Son. Many wonder, is he calling Elijah? Why would they wonder that? It's because Eloi, Eloi, those Aramaic words sounded a lot like the name Elijah. And so some thought that, they you know, say, wait, wait, let's see if he's really going to call Elijah. There were, you know, some Jewish beliefs that Elijah would return in the last days. And so that's kind of what people are wondering if it's taking place here. And then in verse 37, we read that he lets out a loud cry. Now, we're, we're not certain which cry Mark is referring to here. Uh, we know that in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We know in John 19.30, the final cry that he gives is, it is finished. And so while, while we are unsure of the certainty of the words that were spoken in this moment in Mark's account, what we do know from Mark's account is that whatever he said had a huge impact on the centurion. Because the centurion, who's witnessed hundreds, if not a thousand deaths, it was all in a day's work for him, He then is standing at the foot of the cross after being the one in charge of Christ's very crucifixion. And he says, surely, truly, this man was different. This man was the son of God. Then the camera zooms out in verse 40. And what do we see? We see that there are these three women there, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary. uh, It's most likely the mother of Jesus, Mary. Um, His brother's names are mentioned here. And... uh, and we, we see Salome, who was the mother of James and John. And so there they are. Uh, throughout the ministry of Jesus, we constantly see him elevating the role of women in Jewish society. Uh, his 12 disciples were men, but he had, he had many people who followed him, and many of them were women. We see that as this uh, passage continues that they actually represent a greater number, and yet they are standing far off, uh, reminiscent of Psalm 3810 
where we read that uh, his companions would stand far off from him. I mean, just imagine not only the, the pain of crucifixion and what was going on spiritually for Jesus, but even how he felt as those who were closest to him were standing far away. In verse 42, the passage then begins to point more toward the burial. And what do we read? That it is evening time. Now, that's significant for a couple reasons. Uh, first, this is significant because the book of Deuteronomy uh, commanded that anyone who is executed upon a tree must be taken down before nightfall. And so to be within Jewish law, uh, Joseph of Arimathea surely would have wanted to do that. Um, not only that, we know that it was the day of preparation. And so the Sabbath day was coming. Uh, they were preparing for the Sabbath day in which you could do no work. And so uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who would also be a part of the burial of Christ, wanted to take Christ down from the cross before the Sabbath day began on Friday at, at the, the fall of sunset. Uh, this new character, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, the very ones that had kind of tried Christ in an unfair way. And yet Luke would tell us that he did not agree with the way that Jesus would try. What we find is that he, in fact, uh, seeks the kingdom. We're told here that he took courage whenever he goes and, and talks to Pilate. Why? why? Why would this have taken courage? Well, it's because... Uh, Roman law at this time uh, forbade anyone who had faced a death like this to be buried in a dignified way. They wanted the shame that went along with the cross to actually outlive the person that endured it. They wanted to, them to hang there for days so that everybody would walk by that person and that they would look with disgust upon them. And so Joseph, with great courage, then goes to Pilate, asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate is surprised that Jesus would have died so fast. And so he then asks the, the Roman centurion who was standing there, he says, is, is Jesus really dead? And he said that he is. And so then Joseph receives the body of Jesus from Pilate. What does he do? Well, then he takes them to a tomb, a tomb that had not been used, a tomb that belonged to Joseph. Uh, and then he, we know that Nicodemus was there with him, and they place him in the tomb. They place the body of Jesus in the tomb, and it says that he rolls the stone down. Now, I, I think uh, one thing that I was, um, you know, wanted to do a little bit more research on whenever I was looking at this, I was like, okay, so how was Joseph, um, let's say Joseph and Nicodemus, able to roll this stone in front of the tomb entrance whenever we know that these tombstones uh, were actually very difficult to move? Uh, well, it would have been about, you know, four feet in diameter. Uh, it's, it's a stone that would have been very large, and yet uh, they kind of were on a grooved slope in front of the tomb entrance. And so it would have only taken really one person to kind of get it to go down, and yet it would take several men to be able to lift one of these back up because you're now lifting it back up an incline. What do we know for certain? That the centurion, who is a professional executioner, declared Jesus Christ dead at the scene of the cross. Uh, there is no talks of a swoon theory in the coolness of the tomb. Maybe Jesus wasn't fully dead when they took him down. No, Jesus was dead. And it is through his death that he offers eternal life because he will live again. So Joseph and Nicodemus, they place him inside the tomb. We know that this tomb would have been easy to find because it was Joseph's. It was a Joseph's family tomb. He had purchased it. He knew where it was. At the end of this passage, verse 47 we see that Mary, the women that were looking from a distance, saw where they had laid him. And it is the exact place that we will see them return next week. 
And so this is the setting. This is what has taken place. But what is the significance of it? What is the difference in being able to hear the story of the cross and then being able to make a video like we saw this morning where you say, this is how the cross changed my life. What's the difference? What's the gap between what God has done in the world and what God has done for you? Well, I hope to point to three accomplishments that we see in the death of Christ. Accomplishment one, the death of Christ conquers death and offers life. The death of Christ conquers death and offers life. We don't need to be convinced that death is unnatural. We know that death is a distortion of what God has designed as good. Think about this week, whenever you see news headlines of of lives lost, whenever you find yourself at the funeral of a loved one and you're sitting there grieving with your head in your hands, there is something that cries within you, this isn't right. Death is an unwelcome intruder into God's good design. It breaks our hearts, puts a pit in our stomach. Even someone that doesn't have a Christian worldview feels the pain of death, fears death, and looks upon death with disgust because things weren't designed to be this way. See, the Bible teaches that sin is the cause of death and that death is the consequence of sin. The Bible teaches that sin is the cause of death and that death is the consequence of sin. Why do we believe that? Because whenever, we know that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them for life. Not just life in the physical sense, but life with him, true life, abundant life, as Jesus would call it. And in his mercy, God warned Adam and Eve about death, about the danger of death, the death that they would experience both physically and spiritually if they were to disobey him in the garden. That's why in Genesis 2, he says, you can eat of any tree except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that you will eat of it, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what does that mean? What does death mean? Uh, We almost expect that as soon as they eat the fruit that they would drop dead in the moment. And yet what we find in scripture is that death in reality has two dimensions. There's both physical death and spiritual death. Let's unpack those a little bit. You see, physical death is perhaps what we think of most often whenever we hear the word death. It is the moment that your pulse stops. Your lungs no longer take in air. Uh, There's nothing going on in your brain. It's the moment that your soul leaves your body. That's physical death. And if, and if physical death is the moment that your soul is separated from your body, then spiritual death is whenever your soul is separated from God. It's, it's the, the absence of spiritual life, which is having communion, unseparated communion with God. Spiritual death is summarized well in the memory scripture that you have on your seat this morning. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. What is spiritual death? It is to be separated from God. And that's the exact consequence that Adam and Eve experienced. And maybe you're wondering, well, how does that affect me? Well, Romans 5 says that it it affects the entire world. Look at what Paul would write. He said, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. So also death was passed on to all men because all sinned. 
we have experienced and received an unwanted inheritance from our first parents. Death has spread to the entire world. Physical death takes place slow and gradual, right? It's the unpleasant reality that every day we live, we're one step closer to physical death. We, we experience the pain of death in our lives every day, on the news, interpersonally. But not only that, spiritual death. Each person is born spiritually separated from God. We've inherited the sinful nature that Adam brought into the world. And because of that, our hearts, as Romans 8 says, are hostile to God. We are rebels, uh, not only ignoring his commands, but disobeying them, wanting nothing to do. And that's our, that's our natural disposition, that we are dead spiritually and that we die physically. Where does that leave us? I think it leaves us wondering who will conquer this enemy of death who, who will ultimately put this curse to death? Who can reconcile us to God? Those, those were the same questions that were on the hearts of those in Israel when the prophet Isaiah was prophesying to the people of God and he gave these comforting words about one who was to come. In Isaiah 25, eight, we read that he, the Messiah, will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Before the son of God ever took on flesh, the people of God were waiting longingly for the day that the sting of death would be no more. And on the day that the son of God is born into the world, we see that he was born to die, to put sin to death that we might be born again. And so at the ninth hour, Jesus lets out a loud cry. I think we can safely assume here that this is the cry, it is finished. His battle against death is over and he is victorious. Maybe you're wondering, well, what is finished? It is that he has fully conquered death in both dimensions. I mean, he, he experiences physical death, does he not? He experienced physical death in that he breathes his last. And for the Christian, we have the hope that when we breathe our last to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that we can have everlasting life in his name. Through his death, we know that there is coming a day that we will be resurrected and receive glorified bodies. He conquers this curse in his death and offers us eternal life. He offers us spiritual death or spiritual life through his death. What happens? He experiences separation from God the Father. For a moment, he is separated from God the Father, saying, I am forsaken by God, that we would be reconciled to him forever. He drains the poison of death's sting and secures eternal life for every person who would believe. Here we see what is accomplished on the cross, that the death of Christ puts sin to death. This is why in 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul would write to Timothy, pointing to the grace of God revealed through our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here we see that we have life in his name. It's offered to us through the death of Christ. So maybe you're wondering, okay, well, how does that really impact me this week? Well, let's consider a couple ways. Maybe, maybe if you and I were, were grabbing coffee this week and I was just to, to try to, you know, 
really bring this home to you. Maybe you find yourself grieving over the death of a loved one right now. I think the death of Christ enables us to acknowledge the pain of death. Right? We, we look at it, we see what he endured for us. And at the same time, it gives us great hope that death is not the end because Christ lives again and offers life to all who believe. Maybe you're someone who, who just is anxious. You're fearful of physical death, right? So, so you're fearful of death. You don't know what's next. And yet scripture tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is actually to know God all the more. There is no fear in death for the Christian. So take comfort in that. Perhaps this is the application that you need this morning, that the death of Christ also crucifies the power of sin in your life. That power of, of, of the sin that you're struggling with has no power over you. Whenever, whenever you're thinking, you know what, I, just, I, keep, I keep running to the same things, I see, keep seeking comfort in the same area, and I keep responding in the same way whenever I'm frustrated or tired or upset, and I keep thinking these thoughts, the death of Christ crucifies the power of sin in your life. You no longer have to submit to its power or to surrender to your flesh, but look to Christ and say, Christ has crucified the power of sin in my life. God, by the Holy Spirit working within me, would you remove the presence of this sin as I seek to trust you? 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins on his body, listen to this, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We identify with Christ. We identify with Christ in our baptism. We identify with Christ in daily crucifying the sin that he died for. And finally, the death of Christ for those around us. The death of Christ for those around us provides the lens through which we should view those around us. The death of Christ for those around us provides the lens of love through which you should view your spouse, your roommates, your fellow church members, your children when obedience is slow, your patience toward your coworkers. If, if God has loved those around you so much that he would send his only son to die for them, then how would that change the way that you treat them this week? How would that change the way that you view yourself and your own value? coming to God and saying, I am a sinner worthy of death and eternal damnation. And yet because Christ died for me, I relate to the father as a child, which leads us to the next accomplishment. Accomplishment two, the separation of the son grants us access to the father. The separation of the son grants us, you, access to the father. Have you ever noticed that our prayers have a strange way of giving vent to what's going on in our hearts? If you, if you listen to someone pray for a little bit, you can kind of get a good sense of uh, what their fears are, the things that they're looking forward to, maybe where their identity is at. Like your, your prayers have a way of really just kind of exposing your heart before whoever's listening. And for that reason, I love hearing my kids pray. Right? We have a five-year-old boy, a three-year-old boy, and the things that they pray about, it's like you never know what you're going to get. And uh, at dinner every night, our, our three-year-old Charlie, he's always like the first to pray. Like we just say, who's going who's gonna to pray tonight? And then he just starts. And it's like always, Father, we thank you for this day. 
a statement or request that you have no idea what it's going to be, and then amen. Well, this past Tuesday, we're sitting there at dinner, and he begins to pray, and he says, Father, we thank you for this day. And he said, uh, God, I pray that I never lose my mom and dad. Amen. And like, as a parent, you're just like, oh, you know, like, thanks. You know, like yesterday, it was literally about Spider-Man. Glad to just have an honorable mention here, you know. And, and so he's like, pray that I never lose my mom and dad. And it's, it's interesting to hear that fear voice from him because, you know, he's, I mean, when he runs around here, he is like all over the place. He, he doesn't have a care in the world. Um, but yet, whenever we go to like a crowded place that he's unfamiliar with, like the, the mall or urban air or something like that, he like stays close. He stays really close. And I can't think of a, you know, worse phobia as a parent than to, you know, lose my child and not know where they're at. I mean, moments that you just kind of look around the room real quick and you don't know where they're at. It's like, it's terrifying. Now, I, I point to that, that simple human experience of a child not wanting to lose their parent or the parent not wanting to lose their child to scratch the surface of what took place on the cross. If we are to understand what Christ endured whenever he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We must understand the depth of union that they experience for all eternity. I think sometimes perhaps we gloss over the significance of what Christ endured in this moment for us. When Jesus talked about his relationship with the Father in John 10.30, he, he, he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, now take the one flesh union that occurs when husband and wife are married and then, and then kind of stretch that across eternity with complete depth of oneness. Uh, the Father and the Son, as, as the first and second person of the Trinity, experienced an eternal congruity of essence in every way. No separation, perfect, unbroken harmony forever. That's why John 17, 5, Jesus said, now, Father, when he's praying, glorify me, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Imagine losing a spouse after like 50 years. You know, if God's gracious, 60 years. And I mean, like how painful that would be. So much of your life is about that person, right? Now, imagine having that relationship for an eternity and, and in this moment that, that it would be broken for a moment. They enjoy this relationship of complete unity, relationship of Jesus and the Father. Now, now, here's the interesting thing. As a person created in God's image, you were created for a relationship with God and to relate to God the Father as Father. You were, you were created for that kind of relationship. Look back at the garden. Whenever we read that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, this unbroken, harmonious relationship with God as those created in his image. And yet sin forfeited that relationship. So then the question becomes, how can I have access to God again? Well, for us to have access to God again, something unthinkable would have to happen. If, we, if those who are separated from God the Father were to be reconciled, then something unthinkable would have to happen. Someone would have to take our place Someone, Christ, would have to be separated so that we could be reconciled. And what we find in this passage is that the eternal harmony of the Trinity would have to be temporarily broken so that we could be reconciled to the Father. For us to be reconciled to the Father, Christ the Son would be forsaken by him. And Christ was separated for a moment so that you could be united to God forever. Look again at this card. 
God says, your sins have hidden his face from you. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And yet, what is the Christian life? That God hears us. Why? Because for a moment, his face was hidden from the Son when he bore our sin. This is, this is no small thing. I mean, could you put yourself in the, in the sandals of a bystander who is watching all of this unfold? You hear Christ cry in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were any follower of Jesus, maybe you're wondering at this moment, where's the voice that thundered through the heavens on the day of Christ's baptism that said, behold, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. As Christ is crying out on the cross, where, where's the voice that was heard on the Mount of Transfiguration that says, this is my son, listen to him. And yet as Christ cries out, it is as if those darkened clouds between heaven and earth act as iron bars and the heavens are silent and Christ is forsaken. This was far worse than the mocking, the scourging, the crucifixion in itself, that this beautiful relationship for a moment would be separated. And yet something interesting happens. Verse 38 shifts the focus for a moment. It says that as Jesus breathed his last, something took place in the temple. Mark, Mark, the most important thing happening in this passage is surely at the cross. Why are you telling us about what's going on at the temple? But he's doing it for a good reason. He tells us that the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, why is that so significant? Well, some temple background would help us to understand that the tabernacle and the temple were both these places created that God told his people to construct as a place that would represent his concentrated presence among his people in the midst of sinners, God was present. And there was this place within the entrance of the temple where there was a large veil and it separated a place that you would enter into, that one priest would enter into once a year called the Holy of Holies. No one was granted access there. No one was granted access to God like that except for one person whenever he had the perfect sacrifice. And yet what takes place in this moment? The veil is torn from top to bottom to signify that the veil was torn by none other than the divine hand of God himself. And we don't need to speculate about the significance of this. The author of Hebrews, inspired by God, tells us. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says that we have confidence. Christian, you have confidence to enter the holy places. How? A place like that? How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. The death of Christ has destroyed that curtain of separation. Christ has become the new curtain for you into the presence of God. That wherever you are sitting, wherever this week takes you, that you have direct access to God because Christ laid down himself on the cross to become the curtain by which you would enter into the presence of God. Do you feel weak? Run into the presence of God. Are you sinful? Run to the presence of God who has the power to forgive and has, and has accomplished everything on the cross. Is the future unknown? Welcome to the club. But you can run to the God 
who holds the future in his hands. You have access to God because the curtain is open and the curtain is Christ. Do you have a personal relationship with God the Father like this? With confidence you approach him. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe this is the first time that you've stepped foot in a church in years. I wanna say welcome. It's the perfect place for you. I want you to know that you were created for a personal relationship with God. Maybe you've been searching for something. You've never quite been able to put your finger on it, but, but you've kind of felt this, these desires within you that haven't been satisfied by anything you've been chasing. Maybe you've tried to manage the symptoms of everything that you feel, but in reality, the source is that you are separated from God and nothing will satisfy until you know him. Maybe you're crippled by other people's opinion of you. Maybe you find yourself and you're just obsessed with success. I want to be successful in what I'm studying. I want to be successful in my career. I want, I want people to, to look well at me, but you kind of have this underlying feeling that you'll never quite measure up no matter what you do. Maybe you feel kind of the discomfort of this, so you try to escape. You self-medicate with alcohol or, or just by having a really busy schedule because people in the world actually think that's a pretty amicable or honorable thing. Maybe you just scroll on your phone because a moment of silent and stillness would expose just how loud things are in your heart. Friend, these are the the check engine lights that point to the reality that what you really need is a relationship with God. If that's you, I want you to to talk to me, talk to a friend today, and to realize that Christ died so that you could have eternal life with God. Maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're sitting here this, this morning and you would say, if someone asked, you would say, I'm a Christian. You'd say, you know, I know, I know these things about God. I've, I've heard people talk about the cross a lot. You know, I have a Bible. I've been baptized. And now, here's, here's the dangerous thing about that is that there are a lot of people in our world that identify as Christians and yet are not actually believers. They're not actually following Jesus. That when they die, they will be judged and they will spend eternity in hell because what they've actually spent their lives doing is trying to be really religious, good people, but they've never actually fallen before God and say, I am a sinner undone. And unless you save me, I will die and go to hell. Unless you acknowledge, unless you place your faith in Christ, Completely, totally, not in the works of your hands, but in the wounds on his, you will not be saved. Because religion says, if you really want a relationship with God, if you want access to the Father, you, well, you, gotta, you gotta do these things, you gotta check these boxes, you gotta try harder, you gotta white knuckle your effort, you know, hop on this treadmill of performance and do all these things. And maybe if you do enough, maybe God will accept you. And you'll spend your entire life trying to be a good person. But what the gospel tells us is that we are not good people trying to get a little bit better, but we are dead people who need to live. And only the death and resurrection of Christ will revive our soul. So if you had that conversation with Christ and what you said, I'm dead, I'm dead. And apart from you, I will not live, but in your name, I will it's the daily prayer of the Christian is to behold the all-sufficiency of Christ and to try to not rely on ourselves. We all do, I, I, that's my tendency too, is to rely on my own effort and performance to relate to God. And what does the cross say? That it is finished. I relate to God only through what Christ has accomplished. 
you see the, the author of Hebrews continues, and he says that we are to draw near in confidence. And I want to be quick here because we, I want to get to the, the last, last point, but I think there are three ways that you can practically do this, and I've alliterated them for your convenience, so you can just jot them down real quick. But to the Christian, what does it mean to live with, with access to the Father through the separation of the Son? Well, we know that, that Christ rose, that he is now with the Father again at the right hand of the Father, that he is seated on his throne. So what does that look like in our lives? We, we praise God. We pray to him and we practice godliness. We praise God for his plan to save us and that he accomplished everything needed for our salvation. You want to grow in your walk with the Lord this week? Wake up every morning praising him for what he did. Pray to him. Take hold of the access that you have to the Father. Acknowledge your dependency in his constancy. I mean, think about the command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now, I'm not about to apply that how you think I am uh, because I could definitely just kind of like guilt trip everybody in here, right? Like, have you prayed without ceasing this week? And if you feel confident, like I have definitely done that this week, then you can have my position next week because we're all like in this process, right? Of trying to, I mean, I want to constantly be in prayer to the Lord, but that's not the application I'm about to make. The, the command corresponds to the ability, Right, so if Paul can say, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pray without ceasing, what does that mean? That you have access to God, to the throne room of God without ceasing. So when you wake up late and you're trying to get all your stuff together and you gotta pack the kids' lunches and get off school, man, you have access to God in that moment. Whenever you've just had the worst day ever and you sink into your couch, you have access to God. Whenever you are confused and frustrated, you have access to God. If you can pray without ceasing, then you constantly and continually have access to the God that you are commanded to pray to. That's the joy of the Christian life. And finally, you practice godliness, right? So as I said, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Follow me. Knowing Jesus is an invitation to walk with God again. The presence of God, access to God. And how do we experience that in our life? We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit access to God? Does it get any closer than that? That the third person of the Trinity has taken up residency within your bones? Man, I can't, I can't live out the Christian life in my own power, but the gospel says I don't have to, right? So now I can steward my time to serve others. I can, I can set aside the, the weights and the sin that clings to me as I pursue Christ as I behold the love of Christ for me on the cross, it makes me love others. This access to the Father changes everything about us. And third and finally, the accomplishment that the revelation of Christ's true identity illuminates hearts that are darkened by sin. The revelation of Christ's true identity illuminates hearts that are darkened by sin. The first description that we get of this day is darkness. This is language that is pulled straight from Amos 8, 9 through 10. He said that there would be a day that sin is dealt with, the judgment comes, and and the sky grows dark. It would be a day of mourning as if the only son, as if an only son died. And that's what what takes place. It's a day of of mourning. It's a day of judgment. It is by no coincidence that here we see, almost replayed before our eyes, a new Exodus story. What was the ninth plague that took place in Egypt? Darkness. Darkness. Darkness covered the land. And what was the 10th plague that came? The Passover. And what took place at the Passover? A substitute for sins was slain 
so that those who applied that substitute to their lives would be set free. And the firstborn son of the sinner was slain. And yet what happens on this day of Passover? Darkness covers the sky. One for sin is slain and a substitute is given. And now all the people of God who believe in him go free into the promised land, which is knowing God. A new exodus occurs on this day. So darkness leads to light. We also know that darkness is a spiritual descriptor of the world. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he says that, that the light came into the darkness and people loved the darkness. Is that not how to describe what we see in these last pages? Darkness, does darkness not describe the ruthless beatings of Christ, the betrayal of one of his closest followers, the abdication of justice by Pilate, the, the crucifixion of our Lord is not all of this described by darkness. And yet in God's mercy on this day of darkness, a heart, a heart, an unexpected, unlikely, seemingly unlikely heart is illuminated by the grace of God. And the very centurion that put Christ to death utters these words, truly this man is the son of God. This man's dying words were different to him because this man's dying words brought life. And he declares this man was the son of God. We've heard this declared all throughout the book of Mark. If you've been with us since the beginning, you've heard this, right? The, the beginning of the gospel. This is the story of the son of God. The day of baptism, this is the son of God. Even the legion of demons say, who are you, holy one, son of God? Don't send us there. Please send us to the pigs. The Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's confession. Again, Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. You are the Son of God. And then this centurion at the foot of the cross utters, truly, this is the Son of God. And while he is the last one in this book of Mark to utter that this is the Son of God after seeing this story unfold, he is not intended to be the last. It is almost as if Mark is saying, what say you, reader? Do you believe that this is the Son of God? after the miracles that you've seen, after the authority that he's taught with, after the hope that he's given, how he has both called out sin and yet would be crucified for it, what do you say? Would you see that I'm the son of God, Jesus says. Would you see that I have the power to take upon the penalty of death and give life to all who would believe? We see these unlikely people acknowledging who Jesus is. The Jewish Sanhedrin member, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, would be prone to self-righteousness and realizing he has no righteousness in himself. This centurion who would be a part of Christ's crucifixion realizes that he needed this death for himself. The light of the world shines and the true identity of Christ is revealed. And yet, what does that mean for you? That if you have received this light, you have become a light to the world and you can now shine it into the hearts of men. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Something similar, something that could only be compared to the day that God created the heavens and the earth, let light shine out of darkness, has happened for every person who has acknowledged that Jesus is the light of the world and that light has shone in their darkened hearts. that They would turn to him. That means that the church, you, Christian, 
are now the light of the world, a city on a hill, shining as lights in the darkness. So if the true identity of Christ has been revealed in darkness to you, you now make it known in the world. Maybe that means asking someone at work, just simply this week, bringing up the conversation, do you celebrate Easter? What are you doing this weekend? Maybe it's to take that bag that you received and and hand it to someone. Maybe bake cookies for a neighbor, put them in there and and take them to their house sometime this week. Maybe it's to invite a a friend or family member. Maybe maybe it is to simply say, I'm gonna start praying for a lost friend or family member each day because this light has shown to me and I want to be a light to others. Maybe you would say, Lord, help help me to be a light in the world. Maybe, Maybe God is calling you to begin reading the book of John with someone who's not a believer, who would be interested in reading the Bible with you. What we know is that the death of Christ offers eternal life to everyone who believes. So in response, we receive this life that Christ offers and we are a light in the world. Let's pray.